Good evening, everyone. Or good afternoon. Good morning. No, it's morning. I said good evening. My father used to do that all the time. Good evening. It'd be like 6 o'clock in the morning. Good evening. Funny guy. Unfortunately, I've, I've adopted some of his humor. <laughs> all right. Good morning. Lost all hope when I'm feeling so very lonely. I could cry, I could die. I think back to the cross, and then I know that I am loved. I think back to the cross, and then I know that I am loved. Yes, I am love. I am love. In my darkest hours, when I feel that I've been abandoned and abused and accused, I think back to the cross. I am loved, I am loved with a love that resides in the nature of God. I am loved by a God who was willing to suffer, willing to suffer for me. Yes, I am loved. of God You are loved by a God who was willing to suffer willing to suffer for you Yes we are loved We are loved We are loved Oh yeah Yes, we are loved. All right, I'll hang up the guitar right back.
All right, uh, good morning again to everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to continue our introduction to the, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, which, is, as we pointed out, was not only directed to the, uh, the Ephesian Christian community in the first century AD, uh, but also to the various Christian communities and the various cities in the Roman province of Asia, like uh, Laodicea, Thyatira, Pergamum, places like that that you see in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 with John. The Lord has John send messages out to the seven churches of Asia. And I believe, like 1 John, Ephesians was written to those exact same churches, but some 40 years, 30 years prior by Paul. John wrote his at the end of the first century, his first epistle, which we studied in great detail. So, we're going to continue our study of the introduction. Today, we're going to be looking at the form and structure of the Ephesian epistle. So, we're going to be going right through the book today. Um, and of course, we won't uh, be getting into the verse by verse detail of these verses until um, the details of these individual verses and paragraphs and whatnot uh, until uh, we finish off this introduction, which actually next week is the final week of the introduction. We'll be wrapping up our, our introduction to the Ephesian epistle uh, next week. So, uh, also just a reminder, too, uh, as is the case every the first Saturday of each month, we observe the Lord's Supper. So, uh, and uh, one over here at DBC where I teach on Sundays uh, and Wednesdays on uh, on Sunday mornings. We uh, on the first Sunday of each month we do the Lord's Supper over there as well. So we're doing it here uh, Saturday, this coming Saturday. So mark that in your calendar, those who are following the ministry. And uh, so uh, without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. Uh, we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, Disturbing and distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the grace, the faith, the salvation you're working on behalf of eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the Cross, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. I just thank you, Father, for uh, the people joining us live or those at a later date through the recordings uh, on our uh, various website, podcasts, immediate platforms that you've given to us. 
And I just thank you, Father, for those who might not be Christians that are visiting and, and curious or searching. I thank you for them. I just thank you, Father, for, um, again, this technology. I pray it would function properly. I pray there'd be no pro- problems with recordings, the video and the audio, and upload these things, recordings to the various website and podcast immediate platforms that you've given to, to us. I pray you'd use those mightily and protect them from the evil one. I thank you for the streaming uh, video provided by, for us by uh, YouTube. I pray it would function properly, and thank you for it doing so in the past. And uh, I just thank you, Father, also. Uh, for the gift you give me and this ministry and the people who are faithful to Winston Bible Ministries that have been uh, giving, serving, and uh, being good stewards with the, the time, talent, and treasure and truth that you've given to them uh, over the years in this ministry and those who are praying for this ministry and supporting this ministry financially. I thank you for each and every one of them. And uh, also, I pray today that you would help me today as your, uh, be, to be used by your instrument. The, uh, instrument. I pray the Spirit would uh, uh, help me and empower me to communicate accurately, accurately this subject of the form and structure of the Ephesian epistle and to do so with reverence, respect, and power and help me to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. And I also pray the same for uh, your children in the audience, whether they're live or through the recordings. I pray, Father, by the power of the Spirit, you would use them mightily and help them to understand what's being taught and to uh, concentrate and make application to what's being taught and uh, uh, please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening. And just uh, pray that as a result of this Bible class, we'd have a greater love and appreciation for this epistle and understanding of it and be able to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is in His name we pray. Amen. So as you can see on the board, we're going to be noting the form and structure of the Ephesian epistle. Uh, thus far in our study of this letter, we noted the canonicity of this letter. And uh, we saw that the, uh, the canonicity um, was, it, that means the, the uh, canonicity means that uh, inspiration determined in, uh, canonization. In other words, uh, uh, when a writer was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that meant it was in the canon of Scripture. And the, and the church, all they did was recognize the divine authorship of these books. And they had the gift, each member of the, the, the church has the gift of the Spirit. Uh, in them, and also there was the gift of discernment back in the first century. Paul mentions that gift in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, that uh, helped out, aided in uh, the church in understanding which books were inspired by God and which were not. So uh, this book, Ephesians, was accepted immediately. Uh, there was never, the canonicity of this book was never in question. We find it in the earliest list of the church uh, catalogs of uh, books and uh, Ephesians was in there in the moratorian canon Athanasius Festal Letter he, he mentions that in 367 AD was in the Council of Carthage First Council Church Council they recognized that it was uh, Paul uh, Ephesians Epistles Ephesian Epistle was accepted immediately in fact all of Paul's writings were including the pastoral epistles which are uh, called into question today many in evangelical scholarship as I pointed out have uh, believed that uh, 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 Paul wasn't the writer of the pastoral epistles, and many now believe that he wasn't the writer of Ephesians, even though his name's on it. <laughs> and also, more importantly, uh, not just that, but uh, the church has always recognized, recognized Ephesians, as well as the pastoral epistles, as Paulian authorship. And the church has never accepted pseudonymous letters. Many believe today in biblical scholarship, and I'm talking evangelical scholarship, that the pastoral epistles and even Ephesians are synonymous uh, work, meaning somebody was posing as Paul out of reverence for Paul. But the church rejected that. Tertullian mentions this in his work on baptism, that there was a pastor who was 
who was revered Paul and uh, was trying to increase his fame, but uh, and he was posing as Paul and writing to some of the churches, and he was excommunicated for doing that. Paul, uh, as we pointed out in Second Thessalonians, a book we studied in detail, Second Thessalonians two, uh, he mentions that somebody uh, doesn't know how it happened, but false doctrine about the day of the Lord crept into the Thessalonian church, and uh, saying that the day of the Lord was taking place in their day and age, and it wasn't. And Paul said, even if there's someone in a, with a, uh, allegedly writing a letter from us, reject that if they're saying it's already taken place. And then uh, at the end of the letter, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 17, to 18, 17 and 18, he uh, says, hey, this is my authenticating mark, and meaning he was trying to protect against forgeries. And he did this in Colossians 4, 18. He does it in Galatians 6, 11. So this is something Paul would do. Uh, not all the time, but he would do. Uh, he could. He, he, he might have done it all the time, and we're not aware of that. And he doesn't mention it in the letter, but we know in these letters that he did mention it. So pseudonymous letters were never accepted by the church, and it wasn't until modern scholarship in the 19th, starting in the 19th century, that you see people talking about the pastoral epistles and Ephesians as being uh, a pseudonymous work, pseudonymous, uh, uh, pseudonymous works. Uh, they would say today, but that's. The church has never accepted that for all these centuries. And, and those closest to the audit, original autographs never accepted uh, pseudonymous letters. And uh, so then we also know the recipients of this letter. Uh, the, the Ephesian Christian community was not the only Christian community that were the recipients of this letter. It was actually a cyclical encyclical letter, some call it, as you call it, or we, circular letter is how I like to use the expression. Meaning it was, it was not only directed at the Christian community in Ephesus, this letter, but also to the various Christian communities in the Roman province of Asia. And uh, as we pointed out, and uh, I can show you on, on our map here. I'll find it up here for you. Oh, wait, hold on a sec. Yeah, here we go. All right, so I'll blow this up for you. So these, so like First John and like Revelation, okay, uh, this, uh, the Ephesian epistle appears to have been directed to these churches in the Roman province of Asia. So it came in from Rome, the, this letter we call Ephesians. It was in Ephesus, and then it was, they sent, they made copies of it, read it there, sent it off to Laodicea. Um, the Colossian letter came with Tychicus to there, and, and Tychicus also went on to Colossae and dropped off the Colossian epistle and Philemon. Uh, then he would go over to Hierapolis or Philadelphia, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum. And so this letter got throughout, it was a circular letter and it was directed, uh, the intended audiences were not just the Ephesian Christian community, but these various Christian communities and these various cities in the Roman province of Asia. And from there, they would make copies and send it out. Uh, so uh, it was, so the, the evidence for this is uh, the fact that there's no personal greetings in the, this letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which we call today Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, there was there was no personal greetings. We'd expect that to be the case since he spent three years there, according to Acts 18, 19, and 20. However, there's no personal greetings, and so that would tell us that's certainly evidence for a circular letter. We also, the other piece of major evidence is that the prepositional phrase in Ephesus is not found in the in, in many of the best and oldest manuscripts that we have. And not to say it's not in any manuscripts. There are a lot of manuscripts that have in Ephesus, in FSO in the Greek, in, in their manu there are a lot of manuscripts that do have it, but the best and oldest don't. So why could that be? That's evidence that uh, that this letter was another, this is another piece of evidence that this letter was actually not directed just to the Ephesian Christian community, but again, all these other 
various Christian communities in the Roman province of Asia. And so the, 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 the Dan Wallace, uh, Dr. Dan Wallace has the, and I'm agreement with him, the scenario that it came in from, uh, from Rome, this letter, it was it dropped at Ephesus. It went first there. Um, and that's why we have most of the copies we have today are, you know, we'll have a lot of copies have today Ephesus more than, and then, and not these other cities, except for Laodicea, which, uh, it appears that Martians are the same content that we see in Ephesians and a letter was uh, sent to the Laodiceans, uh, Martian says. So he saw a, a copy of this exact same letter, but with the recipients being the, uh, the believers in Laodicea. And he met, uh, Paul uh, mentions this in Colossians. A lot of people think the Laodicean letter that he mentions there is actually the Ephesian letter by virtue of what Martian said in his writings. And uh, so... So it went to it went to uh, Laodicea, and then from there, it was uh, copies were made and was sent out to these various cities in the Roman province of Asia. So uh, so we that's uh, so we know who the recipients were of this letter, and then we also let me just get rid of my pen here, and then um, all right, I got rid of that pen. We'll use that map later. We also know the place of origin. It was written from Rome. We know from uh, Ephesians three one and Ephesians four one. Uh, that uh, Paul was imprisoned, and uh, and he uh, he was imprisoned, and um, he's uh, he was uh, under house arrest. Uh, if we compare this with Acts chapter twenty eight, he had his own rented quarters in Rome, and he was uh, able to receive people, and he was preaching the kingdom of God, and uh, so he was under house arrest there, and that was between sixty and sixty two A.D. when he wrote not only Ephesians but also Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And uh, so that was during his first Roman imprisonment, which he was eventually released from. He was awaiting his appeal before Caesar. And the book of Acts has that whole story, as we pointed out. So uh, he, the date of this particular letter is tied to that. We know that his Roman imprisonment, uh, based upon the information in Acts and uh, in Philippians and other places, that he was, uh, it, it was during this first Roman imprisonment under house arrest in Rome, awaiting his appeal before Caesar, that Paul wrote, the Ephesian letter. So the place of origin, Rome, and the date is uh, between 60 and 62 AD because we know his Roman imprisonment was between uh, those uh, periods. And so also, um, a lot of people say, that we, as we pointed out, uh, they say that it was written from Ephesus and or Caesarea. But uh, the, the early church, again, uh, the burden of proof is on those people who think that Ephesus and Caesarea were the, the, the place of origin for the letter. The church has never believed that to be the case until modern times again. And, uh, and so uh, we see that the early church recognized it as being uh, from Rome. And, uh, so, uh, and, and so there was, again, until modern times that people have dissented on that. We also know that we left off with the literary genre. This is an epistle. It's a, 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 it's, it has uh, all the, the, the uh, it was a typical Greco-Roman letter written in the first century A.D., we know from uh, Deisman's work, Adolf Deisman's work, uh, ancient uh, Life in the Ancient East and Biblical Studies he had, that uh, looking at the papyri and looking at from the ash heap of people of, the, of history, and uh, you see that people wrote letters like Paul wrote letters to the churches. He had the same form and structure. Paul had, his letters had the same form and structure, uh, structure as uh, letters in the first century, and we know that because of the, the ancient papyri that we found on, in ash heaps. And, and, and Diceman brought this to light. So it was an, it was an epistle, and it was a, a typical letter. It had a, an introduction 
a Thanksgiving section, and then uh, it would have the body of letter, and then some closing thoughts. A lot of times it would be a paranesis section, and uh, as well as we pointed out in the past. And so uh, this is Paul's le- Paul's letters in general look pretty much like a, a, a letter from the first century, written in Koine Greek. And he uses some of the language that you see. When you read some of these letters, like in Deisman's work, you read some of these papyri, it's like, it, well, that sounds like something Paul would say, like especially the greetings and the closings. They sound very uh, similar. And so and uh, so this is uh, what we have so f- covered thus far with our introduction. And all these things I'm mentioning uh, will be uh, are very important interpretation. We do an inter- introduction because these things that we're bringing up, the canonization of the letter, the authorship, the recipients, the place of origin, the date, the literary genre, the form and structure, and the purpose of this letter, as we'll see next week, and the major themes of this letter, are all very important in interpreting this letter correctly. So every every book I've ever studied in the Bible over the last 30 years, I've always done an introduction. And it's if you want it in detail, I, I mean, I only have, um, I'm not... Uh, you know, I'm giving you, I've edited out a lot of stuff. If you look at my PDF document, my exegesis and exposition, and my introduction to this letter, you'll see that there's a lot more in those written articles than you're getting here because of time constraints. I mean, I, if I if I did every single thing and every quote and every uh, thing in, uh, that you see in my introduction in the PDF format that you'll see, we'd be here for a month and <clears throat> maybe more. So uh, if you wanted an exhaustive detail, you can go there. Now, there's also... Um, a lot of these things I'm bringing out in the introduction, you can find in a Bible dictionary. Lexham Bible Dictionary, Anchor Bible Dictionary, Harper's, Unger's, New Bible Dictionary I mentioned in the last class. I'd get one, one or two. You know, I really would. Along with a good commentary, I would say, like the Bible Knowledge Commentary, by, uh, edited by Wolverine Zuck, is a good uh, um, two-volume set. You can go through your the Bible using that. I would recommend that. I did that a long time ago, and also get uh, different translations. Get the NIV, uh, the Net Bible for its translation and its notes, the ESV, get different types of translation and uh, in your library. And it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg today, people, you know, and especially these Bible programs like Logos. You can get some great deals uh, to fit your, you know, what your budget is. And, uh, you know, as a pastor, is it with a tight budget I've had over the years, they're pretty good. They really are very, they're very good. And, you, you know, you're not, you know, pay an arm and a leg, you can pay so much a month for different things. So I recommend these things, take advantage of these things, and there's great scholarship available at our fingertips for the church. So today we're going to note the form and structure of this letter. So that means we're going to go to, uh, it's tied to the uh, literary genre. As we left off, the form and structure of this letter is um, tie, is found in a uh, an Ephesian, an epistolary literature. You see this particular structure. So we're going to look at that structure today. So that means we're going to go through all six chapters of Ephesians. We'll be able to do it. But uh, we'll be going through it quickly, obviously, reading it and not getting into too much detail, just to point out some things about each section. So look at Ephesians chapter, that introduction out of the way. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Now, before we look at uh, the inter- uh, the um, the greeting and the introduction to the letter, the Thanksgiving section, need to point out some things. Ephesians is very easy to divide and to outline. It's very easy to outline. It's like 
Uh, I find like uh, Genesis was very easy to outline. I mean, you have little markers there in Genesis to show you how, how the book is set up. But the uh, Romans, I thought, I think, and Revelation, I think Revelation was one of the easiest books to outline. Easy, you know? And then you, uh, Romans is, to me, is very easy to outline. And uh, of course, a lot of people get hung up on 9, 10, and 11. And uh, so, but it's really, it's connected to what he just said in chapter the first eight chapters, or especially particularly chapters five, six, seven, and eight, what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, 11 is directly related to that, and those who studied Romans to me, with me. But, um, you know, so uh, Ephesians is, is too. It, the book is really, a lot of Paul's letter, letters are like this, you know. Um, uh, first of all, first and foremost, the Bible, uh, the Ephesians, is divided into two main sections, really. Uh, chapters one through three, if you look at the original language, and you can see it in your English translations, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we have we have what we call the indicatives of the faith. When I say indicatives, that means the uh, indicative mood. Okay, you find the indicative mood throughout the first three chapters, and it's making uh, they're making a uh, they're making um, a, a statements. Okay, there's different declarations, assertions being made in this particular um, these first three chapters, and then. Chapters four uh, through six actually contain the imperatives. Uh, basically, in other words, chapters four through six present the, the practical application of the first three chapters. So you have the indicatives of the Christian faith, uh, declarations about who we are in Christ, for instance, and then in chapters four through six, okay, what does it mean to be in Christ? What's, what does it look like? What, how are we supposed to con conduct ourselves as being a children of God in union with Christ, dwelt with the Spirit, um, how does how we're supposed to conduct ourselves? Well, that's where the imperatives come in, in chapters four through six. So, we see that chapters four through six of Ephesians they present the practical application of the first three chapters. So, the prologue, we see that the prologue or preface of the letter, which is actually a doxology, as we'll see when we get to it, which I just finished off. Uh, uh, about a, a couple of weeks ago. So the prologue of the, or the prologue or the preface of the letter, which has a doxology again, appears in Ephesians chapter one, verses three to four. And there are also two significant intercessory prayers offered by Paul to the Father for the recipients of this letter. Now the first appears in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And it, this particular prayer serves as a hinge to chapters two and three. And its purpose is for the recipients of the letter to gain understanding regarding the contents of the first two chapters. Now, the second intercessory prayer for the recipients of this letter appears in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And this second intercessory prayer for the recipients of the, this letter serves also as a hinge, but this time to the final three chapters, and it presents the practical application of the first three chapters. So the letter begins with Paul's customary present uh, a greeting, in the first two verses, he notes that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ in verse 1, and that grace and peace originated not only from the Father, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. I'll be reading for the Net Bible. <clears throat> so Paul writes, from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the beginning of the letter following a typical 
uh, Greco-Roman letter in the first century with an introduction identifying the, the author and the recipients. And so we have, uh, then we have uh, in verses 3 to 14, actually is uh, not, usually you'd have a Thanksgiving section of, uh, following this, like, like Paul does in most of his letters. But here you have a, a, a doxology, which serves as the preface of the letter, which he's going to develop the things he mentions in this doxology in verses 3 through 14, he's going to elaborate upon uh, throughout the rest of the letter. So uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14 with me. So it says in Ephesians 1, 3, it says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and unblemished in his sight, in love. He did this by predestining us to adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace that he has freely bestowed on us in his dearly loved son. Verse 7, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us and all wisdom and insight. He did this when he revealed to us the secret of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ toward the administration of the fullness of the times to head up all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we too have been, uh, we have been claimed as God's own possession since we were predestined according to the one purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will so that we, who were the first to set our hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. And when you heard of the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So notice something here in the doxology, which is very, which is going to tell us this, the outline of the doxology. You see this expression at the end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Did we not see that in other places as well? Yes. And verses and verse 12, to the praise of his glory. You get down to verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So that to the praise of his glory, it's telling us something. You see that at like at the end of each, uh, this serves this particular prepositional phrase, to the praise of his glory, it serves as a marker to an end of a section, which deals with the work of each member of the Trinity. So in verses, what I'm saying is in verses three through six, you have this expression because uh, it's related, this expression is related to the work of the Father on behalf of us church age believers in eternity past and electing and predestinating us to be conformed to the adoption, uh, to be, uh, ad uh, for the purpose of adoption as his sons. Paul says uh, to the uh, to the um, conformists into the into the image of his son Jesus Christ in Romans eight twenty eight. So then we have in verse uh, verses seven through uh, twelve contain description of the, of the son's work in time at the cross, and in verse twelve we have to the praise of his glory as I just pointed out. So that's the praise of his glory is in other words the work of the Father's work in our behalf in eternity past will result in the praise of his. Of his, of his glorious grace and the work of the son at the cross will result in praise to the father as well. And then in verse 13 and 14, we have the work of the Holy Spirit mentioned in our lives at the moment of our justification 
and uh, the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit is indwelling, uh, we see at the in verse 14, at the very end of that, discussion of the work of the Holy Spirit at justification, we have the phrase, to the praise of His glory. So there's an outline even to uh, this doxology. Then, so for, before we go further to the prayer, so what we've seen in this doxology is Paul begins by asserting that along with the Father, the Lord is worthy of praise and glorification. And the Apostle then states that the Father chose the Ephesian Christian community and the other various community, Christian communities throughout the Roman Empire, uh, in the Roman province of Asia, I should say. He chose them, the church-age believer, in Christ before the foundation of the world, as we saw, because of their union identification with Christ, which took place at the moment of their justification through the baptism of the Spirit. Then in verse 5, Paul teaches that the Father predestinated the church-age believer for adoption as his sons through their union identification with Christ. Then in verse 6 and 7, he asserts that they received the Father's grace through his Son, Jesus Christ. And not only this, but they have received redemption through the blood or death of his Son, Jesus, namely the forgiveness of their trespasses. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul asserts that the Father did this when he revealed to the church the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he set forth through the person of Christ. And we see that in this verse, Paul teaches that all things and verse 10 will be summed up in Christ, namely the things in heaven and the things on earth. He's talking about the millennial reign. We also see in verses 11 and uh, 12 and 13, the Christian has been claimed as the father's own possession because of their union identification with his son, Jesus Christ, because they were predestined according to the father's purpose. And they were marked, as it says in verse 13, with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit because they trusted in Jesus Christ at their justification. Now, uh, we have the first of the inter two intercessory prayers uh, in this letter, which serve as hinges, okay? So the first one is, serves as a hinge to chapters 2 and 3, whereas the, the uh, chapters 1 and 2, and then chapter 1 and chapter 3 serves as a hinge uh, between you know, ch uh, chapters 2 and 3 into the rest of the book. So let's look at the, the first intercessory prayer of Paul here in this letter. Great, like, I'm, I'm working on this first intercessory prayer, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 now. He says, for this reason, and he's pointing back to the first 14 verses, for this reason, because I've heard of, and, and this, this is interesting, so he, this prepositional phrase is pointing back to the doxology, but then he says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you when I remember you in my prayer. So, this statement, this causal clause in verse 15, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, is actually a summary statement of the verses 13, 3 through 14. And so it's not redundant. He's just uh, being explicit. Uh, verses, uh, the prepositional phrase at the beginning of the verse, for this reason, points back to that doxology, which he summarizes with this statement here in verse 15, which serves as the basis for him giving thanks to the Father for the, the recipients of this letter in his prayers. So, so he says in verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you when I remember you in my prayers. I pray, and this is what he prayed. Here's the content. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you not a spiritual wisdom, but a, 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 a spirit of wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him. The NIV uses a capital S because they interpret it like I do as referring to the Holy Spirit, not the human spirit. And when we get there, I'll tell you why. I don't have time to do it now. 
But notice the NIV says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, capital S, eh, of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. The ESV, I believe, does the same exact thing. Maybe not. I don't know. Let me see. Uh, la, 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 la. And yes, they do. They use it. They, they interpret it as being the Holy Spirit as well. Good job by both of them. And one of the few, uh, I dissent with the, uh, disagree with the Net Bibles translation, but that's very, once in a while I do, because usually they're right on the button. So uh, let's look at, let's keep going. So he says in verse, um, in um, verse 17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, capital Holy Spirit, may, and actually means may the Holy Spirit cause you to receive wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of Him or your experiential knowledge of the Father. Since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the wealth of His glorious grace and the inheritance of the saints, and what is the incomparable greatness of His power toward us who believe as displayed in the exercise of His immense strength. The Net Bible does a great job in interpreting this uh, participle at the beginning, fotizo, as being a causal participle which is, uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. It's, uh, this is a very difficult uh, syntactically to understand, but they are nailed it right on the button. So then, see, I, 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 go, I like the neck Bible. You can see, I like what they, uh, in their notes for also, as well as their translation. So let's keep going. Look at verse 20. This power, this omnipotence, he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every, every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet, and he gave him to the church his head over all things. Now the church is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. So, we see that Paul's first intercessory prayer for the recipients of this letter, which appears in verses 15 through 22 of the first chapter, teaches that the omnipotence of the Father was manifested when he raised his son from the dead. That's verse 20. Also, Paul asserts that the Father also put all of creation and every creature under the authority of his Son, who he gave to the church as head over all creation and every creature, verses 21 and 23. And now we're going to get to chapter 2, and Paul teaches in this chapter that the, the, despite the fact that the recipients of the epistle were spiritually dead in their trespasses and sin, and as a result were children of wrath as the rest of the human race, prior to their justification, their conversion, God the Father raised them up and seated them with his only one and only son, Jesus Christ, because of, his, because of his great love. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived, according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us who believe uh, toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, we see in these verses, verses 5 through 6 in particular, Paul asserts that the Father raised the church age believer up with Christ and seated them with him at the moment of their justification through the baptism of the Spirit. 
Now, verses 8 and 9, he asserts that they were saved from the wrath of God by grace through the object of their faith, namely Jesus Christ, and absolutely not on their own meritorious actions. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 now. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, For by grace you were saved. Get the paraphrastic construction there, talking about eternal security. For by grace you were saved in the past, and, and it goes on forever, through faith, faith in Jesus. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. Then we see in verse 10, the believer is actually, as Paul describes the believer, you and I, as the Father's workmanship who's been created through their union identification with Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved based upon good works, but for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we would perform them. Look at Ephesians 2, 10 now. For we, the church age believer, are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do, it, do them. Now, we come to a very important section. Uh, because it's tied to the purpose of the letter. As uh, we pointed out, uh, and we'll point out again when we talk about the purpose of the letter uh, next week, uh, the purpose of the letter is really found in the first three verses of chapter 4, the, the, when, the beginning of the practical application of the letter. Paul is concerned about unity, not only be, uh, between uh, the Gentiles in the Christian community and now in, in the Roman province of Asia, but more importantly between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. This was a very big concern. This was the concern he saw had in Romans and other places. So he wanted the the, the Gentile Christian community uh, and the, the people the, the the majority the people who received this let these this letter were Gentiles. Paul says that in this chapter, chapter two, eleven through twelve, uh, twenty one. But he wants them uh, in relation to the the Jewish Christians to get along. And to do that, they need to practice the command to love one another and all that involves, which he gets into in this letter. So now we have Paul asserting uh, in verses 11 through 22 that the Father reconciled the Jewish race with the Gentiles through the person and work of his Son, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone of this spiritual temple. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that Formerly you, the Gentiles, either Gentile Christians, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the Jews, that is performed on the body by human hands, that you, you Gentiles, were at that time without the Messiah, prior to their justification, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, not part of the covenant people of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having a promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away, you Gentiles, because you didn't have a covenant relationship with him, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, and he's going to explain, for he is our peace, peace between the Jews, Jewish race and the, and the uh, Gentile races. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility, when he nullified, that's the law, when he nullified in his flesh, in his human nature, Christ, the law of commandments and decrees, the law, he did this to create in himself one new man, one new humanity, in other words, out of two races, thus making peace between the two and with God. And to reconcile them both in one body to God, both Jew and Gentiles are reconciled. And Paul says in the first three chapters of Romans, both Jew and Gentiles are condemned before a holy God in need of the righteousness of God. And uh, so 
uh, he reconciled, Christ did, reconciled both the Jewish Gentile races in one body, his body, to the Father, through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you, you Gentiles, who were far off, not having a covenant relationship with God like Israel did, and peace to those who were near, the Jews, so that through him, Christ, we would both have access in one spirit to the Father, access in prayer and fellowship. Verse 19, so then, you're no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple and the Lord, and whom you also, in the Lord, you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, in chapter 3, we see Paul teaches, in the first six verses of chapter 3, that the Christian community, uh, he teaches them regarding the mystery of Christ, which is that Gentile believers are now fellow ears during the church age with Jewish believers, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that by revelation, the divine secret, the mystery, was made known to me. As I wrote before briefly, the divine secret, the mystery, is basically doctrines that were not known to Old Testament saints, but now revealed by the Spirit, through the apostles of Jesus Christ, Paul being one of them. Verse 4, when reading this, you'll be able to understand my insight into this secret of Christ. Now, this secret or this mystery, like in most translations, was not disclosed to people in former generations, Old Testament dispensations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, namely, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Here's the mystery, the secret. The fe uh, fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of, of Christ and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. So it was no mystery that the Gentiles would turn to Christ and believe in him. That's predicted in the gospel in the Old Testament. And Paul makes mention of that in Romans 15. And, uh, and so did, and the, and, and Isaiah mentions it quite a bit. So, uh, but what it was not known is that Gentile believers would be fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ during the church age and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. That wasn't known to Old Testament saints, Old Testament prophets. Let's keep going here. Because Paul teaches in verse, uh, verses 7 through 11 and verse 12, he teaches that the Father's eternal plan was accomplished through His Son and that the believer, the church-age believer, you and I, have confident access to the Father in prayer because of our union identification with Jesus Christ. Let's look at, uh, let's look at verse 7 now. I, Paul says, became a servant of this gospel, according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the exercise of his power, to me, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, he's the apostle of the Gentiles, and to enlighten everyone about God's secret plan, the mystery. A mystery or a secret that has been hidden for ages in God, who has created all things. The purpose of this enlightenment is that through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God, great translation, should now be disclosed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And so he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access to God because of Christ's faithfulness, or because of faith in Christ. So Paul, uh, we see 
in verses 14 through 21, also asserts that he prayed to the Father that Christ would dwell in the hearts of the Christian community in the Roman province of Asia and that they would know uh, Christ, uh, know experientially, experientially Christ's love for them. So let's keep going. Let's look at uh, verse 13. For this reason, I ask you not to lose heart because of what I'm suffering for you, because he's in, uh, under house arrest, for which is your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And I pray, here's the second intercessory prayer, that according to the wealth of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person, the new man, the new nature, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through love, so that because you have been rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power that is working within us is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think, to him, this is a doxology in verses 20 and 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the hour, we noted that the practical application of chapters 2 and 3 is found in chapters 4 through 6. Paul begins this practical application uh, in, in of chapters 4 through 6 by teaching that each church-age believer received a spiritual gift because of the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically because of their faith in Him at justification. Uh, and through the Holy Spirit, the Lord gave, uh, He also gave some men, He says, the communication gifts of apostleship and prophet, while others He gave the gift of evangelist and the others the gift of pastor-teacher. Now the purpose of which gift of these gifts was so that the Christian community might grow to spiritual maturity and become more like Christ. So this is all in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. So look at chapter 4 with me. Look at verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's the purpose of the letter there, as we'll say next week. There's one body and one spirit, just as you two were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice he's very concerned about unity. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he captured captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, what is the meaning of he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower regions, namely the earth? He, the very one who descended, is also the one who ascended above all the heavens in order to fill all things. It was he who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So, we are no longer to be children, tossed back and forth by waves, and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. But practicing the truth and love, we will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament, the pastors, the exercise of his, the, the, the gift of teaching. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. So, we see in, uh, in verse 21, Paul goes on to remind the recipients of the letter that truth is in Jesus, 
and, uh, and then that they forgive one another. Just as the Father forgave them through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's verse 32. And they're to love one another as God did through His Son, uh, Jesus Christ. He loved them by sacrificing His Son at the cross. And it also, in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 5, Paul asserts that they should remain in fellowship with God through practice of the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to love one another in order that they might receive their inheritance in the kingdom of, of the Lord, and they were to live godly lives so that Christ might shine on them. That's in verses 7 through 14. And then they were to know what the will of the Lord was by being filled with the Spirit, which would manifest itself, and speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in their hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for each other in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look, look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Paul says, So I say this, and insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking, the non-regenerate, the unregenerate Gentiles, he's saying. They're darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Because they're callous, they've given themselves over to indecency for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn about Christ like this. If indeed you heard about him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. You were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who is being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man, the nature of Christ who has been created in God's image and righteousness and holiness that comes from the truth. Verse 25, therefore, lay aside, having laid aside falsehood, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Righteous indignation. Do not let the sun go down on the cause of your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, doing good with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with the one who has need. You must let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for the building up of the one in need, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then he says in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You must put away every kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, evil, slanderous talk, the sins of the tongue. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ also forgave you. Therefore, verse 1, chapter 5, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial fragrant offering to God. But among you, there must not be either sexual immorality, impurity of any kind, or greed, as these are not fitting for the saints. Neither should there be vulgar speech, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, all of which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving instead. For you can be confident of this one thing, that no person who is immoral or impure or greedy, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's the non-believers don't have any inheritance because that's what they're characterized by these sins. Then in verse 6, he says, Let nobody deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience, the unsaved. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Why? For you were at one time darkness, you were unsaved, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
for the things they do in secret are shameful even to mention. But all things being exposed by the light, light of God's word, are made evident. For everything made evident is light. And for this reason it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So therefore, he says, be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise by understanding what the Lord's will is. And then we have that in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for each other in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that last phrase, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, is connected to what he's going to say at the beginning in verses 22 uh, to the end of the chapter. So chapter 5 closes with Paul addressing the proper function of the relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and slave masters, and it continues into chapter 6. He begins this section by teaching that the members of the Christian community were to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We just saw that in verse 22. And this submission would manifest itself when wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. Just as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything and that's in verse 24 of chapter 5. And correspondingly, husbands were to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's verse 25. And he who loves his wife loves himself, verses 26 through 28. And Paul asserts in verse 29 that Christ cares for the church. And so husbands, Christian husbands, should care for their wives. And then in verses 30 and 32, Paul says that when wives and husbands obey these instructions, they're manifesting the great mystery of Christ's love for the church. So chapter 6 continues this uh, section here, these, uh, the household code, we call them. Chapter 6 begins with Paul commanding the children in the Christian community to obey their parents and the Lord, for this is right. And then in verse 4, he says, Fathers were not to protect their, uh, provoke their children to anger, but instead, he's there to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's Ephesians 6, 4. And then in verse 5, Paul asserts that the commands the slaves of this community were to obey their human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of their heart as to Christ. And the slaves were to do their work as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. They were also to obey their masters, he says in verse 8, with enthusiasm as those serving the Lord and not people because they know that each person, whether they're slave or free, if he does something good, they'll be rewarded by the Lord at the Bema seat. And then, in verse 9, slave masters are told by Paul to treat their slaves the same way, giving up the use of threats because they know that both they and their Christian slaves have the same master in heaven. That's verse 9. So let's look at verse 22 in Ephesians 5. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word, 
so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 28, in the same way, he says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each one of you must also love his own wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Then we get to chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment accompanied by a promise, namely, that it may go well with you and that you will live a long time on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your own masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of heart as to Christ, not like those who do their work only when someone is watching as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Obey with enthusiasm as those serving the Lord and not people. Why? Because you know that each person, whether slave or free, if he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. That will be at the Bema seat, which immediately follows the rapture. Then he says in verse 9, finishing off this section, Masters, treat your slaves the same way, giving up the use of threats, because you know that both you and they, the slave, have the same master in heaven, Christ, and there's no favoritism with him. And then we come to the final major section of this epistle, which is in verses 10 through 19, which addresses the Christian community's relationship to Satan and his kingdom. And we, in our series on the church that we did when I was in Marion, Iowa, we did a, a, in that series, and it's in our written article on the church, um, but in that series on the church, I, I addressed the Christian's relationship uh, to the kingdom of darkness, the civil governments, the law, and whatnot. So, and verses 10 through 19 is a big section with regards to the angelic conflict. Uh, this section begins with Paul commanding this community to strengthen themselves in the Lord, which is by appropriating by faith their union identification with Christ. The different aspects of this union and identification are actually described with a military metaphor, namely the full armor of God. So look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God. That's a military metaphor for the, your union identification with Christ, which, mean, which means you're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. So he says, clothe yourselves with the full armor of God. Appropriate by faith your union identification with Christ, which Paul spells out in detail in Colossians 3, and also Romans 6 in particular. So clothe yourselves with the full armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, human nature, human, pe uh, human beings, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens, Satan and his kingdom. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day and having done everything to stand. Everything to stand. Then he says in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, by fastening the belt of truth around your waist, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by fitting your feet with the preparation that comes from the good news of peace. And in all of this, by taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And to this end, be alert with all perseverance and request for all the saints. Pray for me also, that I may be given the message when I begin to speak, that I may confidently make known the mystery of the gospel, for which gospel I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may be able to speak boldly as I ought to speak. And in the closing of the letter, we see in verse 23, Paul asserts that he interceded in prayer for the recipients of this letter that they would experience peace in their souls and when interacting with each other. How? By practicing the love of God with each other through faith in Paul's apostolic teaching and which peace? This peace originates from not only the Father, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. He says, peace to the, uh, verse 21, first of all, let's go there first. He says, take a guess, my dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will make everything known to you so that you too may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know our circumstances in Rome, of course, and that he may encourage your hearts. Then, verse 23, he says, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, in verse 24, closing the letter, also interceded in prayer for them to the Father that the grace of God, which was manifested through the Spirit-inspired contents of this letter, would be experienced by the recipients of this epistle with those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Ephesians 6, 24, grace be with all of those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So that's the form and structure of the letter. Again, uh, we have the typical introduction to a Greco-Roman epistle in the first century, verse 1 and 2, the identification of the uh, author and the uh, recipients, as well as a greeting. And then we have, uh, a little bit different than most Pauline letters, uh, the Thanksgiving section doesn't come until verses 15 through 23 in the intercessory prayer section. But verses 3 through 14 contains a doxology, which is a preface to the letter, which op- uh, brings in, uh, which talks about the work of the Father and eternity past, the Son at the cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit at justification. And then we have the first of two intercessory prayers in verses 15 through 23, which uh, serve as hinges. And this particular first one, Intercessory prayer in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1 serves as a hinge from the doxology to the next couple of chapters. And then we have in chapter uh, 3, we have another prayer which serves as a hinge from the first two chapters to the final three chapters in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So the body of the letter begins really with that doxology and uh, we see that uh, it closes that particular dark, uh, body of the letter closes in verse 20. And, uh, and then we have some final instructions in verses 21 and 22, and then the closing of the letter, which is typical of a Greco-Roman letter in the first century. So that's the structure in the form of the letter. It's pretty easy to outline. And so uh, we read the whole book, the whole Ephesians epistle today. And, uh, you know, more churches should be doing that. Uh, we're supposed to, we actually told Paul, as those who study the pastoral epistles with me, Paul told Timothy that we should uh, have the public reading of Scripture. So we need to read the Scripture publicly when we're doing our ministries. So, which is what we've been doing here for a long time now. So, from the very beginning. So let's uh, close in prayer. We'll pick this up Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Central Time, Lord willing. 
and we'll be observing the Lord's Supper that day as well, as I said before, uh, the opening of today's class. So let's close in prayer. Thank you for joining us. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that this lesson, uh, with regards to Ephesians, the form and structure of this letter would be a blessing to your people and helping them to better understand this letter. And I pray you would guide them in the application of the things that we were taught here today and so that we might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is in his name we pray. Amen.